And I think partly the lack of understanding in terms of depression in the church was me as well, because I would paint that picture that everything was okay. But what I wanted was for, for somebody to come and say to me, you're not okay, something's not right, you are, you know, even when I was outside of a church setting in houses and stuff like that, I'd have that kind of barrier up that everything was okay. So you having a facade? Basically, yeah, and like I say, live in two separate lives, which is not what you want, because when you're a Christian, you are one, you're still, you're one person, wherever you are, outside of church, in church, you are one person, you are living for God, and I didn't feel that at all. I felt like I was, I was two people, and I'd have the Emma that was able to be herself, and the Emma that wasn't able to be herself. That really affected me, my relationship with Jude, and also my relationship with Tim, and ultimately, at the end of the day, my relationship with God. Welcome to Testimony, an encouraging look at how God works in people's lives. I'm very pleased to be speaking to Emma Surrey. We're going to hear a little bit about your testimony, Emma. How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. How are you? I'm very good, thanks. It's taken a little while for us to get this organised. I know, I know. You keep messaging me and I'm like, no, I'm too busy, Dan. I'm too busy. But you finally got me. Finally tracked you down. Well, we're very pleased that you're able to be on tonight. I always start with the question, what was your home life like? And I know a little bit about it. I've, I've read a short bit of your testimony. You were actually born in Wolverhampton, but then you moved around a few places. Perhaps you could take the story up. Yeah, so I don't generally admit that I was born in Wolverhampton, and my parents will agree to that, that I don't admit that I was born there. So I was born in Wolverhampton back in September 1988. I'm the eldest of four girls as well, my poor dad. And from there, we moved over to Bridgend, over to South Wales, where my sister was born a couple of years later. And from there, we moved over to Four Marks down in Hampshire, just outside of Winchester, where my further two sisters were born and my parents lived there until they moved up in 2017. No, they sold the house in 2017 and moved up to Northampton literally five days after lockdown started in 2020. Oh, really? Yeah. And, and a spoiler um, alert, that's where you are now in Northampton. And that is a spoiler alert. That is where I am now, yeah. I am up in Northampton. I've been here now since 2007. Great. Well, we'll get to that eventually. Yeah. So what was the home life like? Did Was there any uh, Christian influence? My parents and my sisters are non-Christians. I was brought up in a non-Christian home. So once we'd moved to Four Marks, my mum and dad became friends with a couple that lived just down the road from us. And their children were the similar age to my sisters and myself. And she invited us to attend the local Sunday school at the Gospel Hall. And that's where I first heard about Jesus. So I would have been five, maybe six. Mum and dad then sent us every Sunday so that I think they could have an hour's peace and quiet at home without the four girls in the house. And as I grew up, I kind of learned more and more about Jesus. I started to attend other services that the church had, so kind of gospel 
a gospel on a Sunday evening, then various youth clubs that they ran and things like that. And then once I turned 10, I was invited by the same kind of church and things like that to attend the Kingfisher Christian camp down in Somerset. And that was the one of the best summers I ever had. I remember coming home like completely matted hair, like really stinky and smelly and just had the best experience ever. And I'd learned so much about Jesus and I'd met so many lovely people from across the world. And I was like, wow, there's so many like-minded people that, you know, I'd only ever experienced the kind of the gospel hall. So it was it was amazing. And I actually continued to go to the Kingfisher camp until I was 18, back in 2017. And it was one of the, the best things ever. I think I gave my life to Jesus in about 2002, when I was about 12. And I was still the only one from my family going to church and I could only go if my parents said that I could go, which was really hard because I wanted to absorb as much as I could about Jesus and I just loved being with everybody and I was taken in by families that just wanted to, to watch me grow and things like that. So it was it was amazing that I had those groups of people that were able to kind of guide me as well. As I look back now, I kind of... I think I believed in Jesus before I gave my life to him, but I was too worried about what my parents would think. And, and I think they honestly thought that it was it was a phase. It was something that I'd I'd grow out of. I wanted to be baptised. I wanted to move forward in my Christian journey. But I think they thought that it would just be over soon and it would be something that would pass. But I kept pestering them, pestering them and praying and praying for breakthrough. And finally, on the 4th of July, 2004, I was baptised in front of my family who came to the meeting and also my church family. And I came into fellowship shortly after that at Four Marks as well. Did you ever find there was much resistance to you being a Christian in a non-Christian home? Not from my family and not from not from my church family. I think it was just I could only go to church when mum and dad said I could go to church. And if they had something planned for a Sunday, then there was no consideration. It was, we're doing this and you're coming. That was that was kind of the the rule until I got a little bit older at 15, 16 and then it was, oh well if you don't want to come then you can sort your own arrangements out for the day. I'd end up getting dropped off or picked up for church and then I'd go back to back to my house for lunch and then I'd be taken back for the gospel meeting and then I'd be dropped off home. And yeah, they were the best days they were, just being with church family and experiencing everything with them. Just experiencing that home away from home, isn't it? It was, and Jonathan and Ruth Singleton really took me in down there, and I did feel like another one of their children most of the time, and I'd be fed, I'd be nurtured, I'd be, I'd learn so much about walking with Jesus and, and learning and, and things like that, and I remember spending my summers just up at their farm, all summer I'd be there if I could, just being with them and just absorbing everything. They are a name which often crops up on this podcast for their influence. And, That's uh, because they are amazing and wonderful and so godly and I miss them so much. I haven't been down to see them since last July and I miss them dearly. Yeah, likewise. And also Maybe just... we should ambush them. <laughs> well, <laughs> the last time I stayed with them, I stayed in their lovely converted log cabin out the back and it's it's very, very nice. I don't know if it would fit in a, a family your size, but it fitted me, so that was fine. <laughs> No, but that's fine, but it will fit me by myself, and that's all that I can do with. <laughs> and, and just a kind of glimpse behind the curtain, we we met at Cheddar Camp, that's where our friendship first started. So that's going back a few years as well, I'll not say how many, but 
More no, than, no, more than five it was or six. a very long time ago. A very long time ago. A long way for you to travel as well. I thought it was a long way for me. Yeah, I was always expecting to get some travel expenses, but Brian Conway never put his hand in his oh, pocket. That's probably because it was only about as far for him as well, or maybe a little bit less. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> but no, Kingfisher Camp holds so many memories for me. So many memories. So many adventures. Bucket ball. Amazing. Uh, Creeley, Creeley, good day. Um, I forgot about Creeley. <laughs> the world's worst theme park. Yeah, we were down in Somerset on holiday a couple of years ago and there was all these signs to Creeley. Creeley this, and me and Tim looked at each other and were like, wow, Creeley, do you remember Creeley? Um, but yeah, it's, I'll tell you what's a wonderful thing is photo memories. Tim's uploaded all the photos from the past and every now and again you go on this on this day and you've got photo memories of photo memories of Cheddar Camp that just pop up and you're like, wow, I remember those. You don't get things like that these days, camps and stuff like that. I mean, you do. I was on one this year, but I know what you mean. Well, I can't just turn up at a camp <laughs> anymore. I'm a little bit too old, Dan, to be honest. So speaking of Tim, it would be at Cheddar Camp that you would meet Tim? So in 2006, I was just about to turn 18. So I'd managed to sneak in as my last year as a camper because I turned 18 in the September, so obviously I was still 17. So I managed to sneak in as a camper. And I met Tim. I'd never never met him before, despite growing up in Four Marks and going regularly to Bracknell, with obviously the links with Jonathan and Ruth. They'd take us over to Bracknell for their Saturday night meetings and things like that. I'd never, never met him or his siblings at all. He was the camp leader, so he was the tent leader, sorry, for the youngest boys tent who were literally running rings around him so I ended up helping him out and bits and we kind of got chatting and and kind of things like that and sounds like a real of, ploy that one yeah I know yeah I think he just wanted me to help him out with his tent to be honest. we got together in September 2006 he was still doing his masters he was starting his final year at Loughborough University and I I'd come out of a quite a long long relationship and was completely like no that's it I'm going I'm going full-on university I'm going to uni in September I don't want to date I don't want to be with anybody I just want to focus on uni and get qualified as a nurse and and everything like that and Tim was pretty much the same as well he was very much kind of like no I'm doing my master's I need to focus on my master's and get my degree kind of out of the way but it would appear that God had other ideas and we started dating in September 2006. I think it was a week before my 18th birthday. So I, I was still... That's bad timing when he's got to buy you an 18th birthday present. Well, it gets better, Dan, because not a couple of days after we started dating, him and Nathan Moore flew to Dubai to stay with Mike, Tim's brother, who was studying out there. So he was actually even out of the country on my 18th birthday, let alone in Loughborough. He was in Dubai, but he did manage to send me some beautiful red roses. I do remember that, which was pretty good. And I was like, oh, I'm in here. And I, like, you know, he's sending me flowers from Dubai. We'd only been together a week. So we did the long distance relationship for about a year. Um, he was, as I say, finishing his master's in Loughborough. And I was doing my final year at college in Hampshire. Um, so obviously I was then applying for universities and he was looking jobs so we kind of had that conversation of where is this going do we want to continue driving up and down the M1 every couple of weekends or are we looking at this is this a long-term long-term thing so I was applying for universities and I decided to apply for 
two up north and two down south and I got accepted onto a children's nursing course in Northampton so ended up moving to Northampton and Tim got a job over in Leamington Spa but decided to live live in Northampton in a flat there while I was in in halls and yeah so we basically moved to Northampton and started to attend a gospel hall up here and kind of continued our relationship really from there. I love that you say up here where for me Northampton is miles south and the fact you said oh, I applied for some universities up north being what the Midlands <laughs> like Northampton and Leicester is what I applied for that's about as far as my kind of like map knowledge kind of goes is Leicester is probably my limit to be honest yeah no offense to you Emma sorry so we're kind of building up to the problem starting that we're going to look at and deal with tonight mm-hmm. But obviously everything that you know is kind of gradually changing. You've you've left home as you know it down in Formox and you've you're stepping out, new university degree, new relationship, in a new place, a new assembly, everything's changing. How did now's probably a good point to say we're gonna look at a depression and we're gonna look at stress and anxiety and how they were revealed in your life. How did they start to come about? So I think, as you mentioned, I had an awful lot of changes that all kind of happened at the same time. So this was September 2007. So I moved to Northampton, say, changed assemblies and, and things like that and moved away from home. I had never lived away from home. My youngest sister is 10 years younger than me, so she was only eight. That was kind of really difficult as well because I felt like I kind of was missing out on I basically missed out on the whole of her kind of teenage years, her childhood and everything really, because I'd I'd moved out. I was doing a nursing degree, I was doing children's nursing and the children's nursing is very much kind of split in that you do a 12 week placement as part of your term, but you also are at uni, um, but you also have to kind of navigate working shifts in a hospital environment as well and study and do life basically as well. Not only that, but my hospital wasn't local. My hospital that I was based in was about 40 minutes from my university. So my shifts that were starting at seven, I was having to get up at kind of half four, five o'clock in the morning to get out, to drive, to be awake enough, to be there for handover at seven o'clock in the morning. I'd work till seven o'clock at night. I'd drive home kind of 40 minutes and I would be absolutely, absolutely shattered and I'd have to kind of still be able to do dinner and relationships and, and things like that. And that was that was incredibly hard. But also I'm trying to build relationships in a new church and a new assembly with people that I've I've never really met. And I'm trying to kind of prove myself and and show that I am dedicated to the church and things like that. When you have depression, your brain is really clever at blocking loads of stuff out but i'll kind of move on to that a little while later because i've got massive chunks that are missing so moving on from starting uni and adjusting to life and things like that in january 2008 tim proposed to me and we got married in his hometown of bracknell on the 8th of august 2008 and we kind of moved in together in northampton And around that sort of time, I started noticing that I was struggling with a bit of stress and a bit of anxiety, but I put it down to planning a wedding and getting married in eight months when you're in Northampton and your wedding is in Berkshire. And obviously I was still trying to juggle university and settling in and 
and things like that. And I got to the point where I'd be having panic attacks almost every day. But again, just kind of, I just couldn't understand it. I kind of sought comfort in God, but couldn't understand why it was happening to me because to me, everything looked like it was settling down. I was obviously, I was busy, I was stressed, I was managing things, but I just couldn't, couldn't get my head around it. And we got married and we then started to adjust to married life, which is a massive change in itself, having obviously neither of us ever living in such close comfort with another person, getting to know all their quirks and traits and habits and, and things like that, and still trying to kind of plod on with uni, because as a nurse, you only get three weeks summer holiday basically none of this three four five months off that you get with <laughs> university courses so that was a massive massive thing so we got married at the end of the first week went on our honeymoon for the second week then had a week to get home and settle in and and things like that and and it was all kind of then it was like whoa back to uni second second year and actually around that sort of time kind of october november time i got the flu like really really heavily got the flu and I was laid up on the sofa and I was just thinking, do you know what? I can't do this anymore. I can't, I can't do this uni course anymore. So I spoke to Tim and I said, look, I'm just going to, just going to pause it just for a term. Just take a break. We've had so much going on. I just feel so overwhelmed. That I just mentally and physically, I just can't do this anymore. So I got signed off from my course and, and then everyone kept saying to me, you don't make rash decisions while you're unwell. You can't make decisions, massive life decisions on the fact that you've got flu. I ended up actually kind of pausing my university course with the vision of going back and restarting my second year the following September. I obviously, being a newly married couple, Tim had only been graduated for three months. He literally came home and said to me, you can't just sit on the sofa. You can't. Because obviously, pausing my course, I lost my bursary. So we were living off Tim's Tim's income and trying to manage finances for the first time. He was like, you can't, you need to get a job. You know, you need to be proactive in getting a job. So I was applying for jobs left, right and centre. I knew I wanted to stay in the healthcare industry, but in my head, I was just like, I can't do this. Like, I, I just need to, I need to sort my head out before I can go and get jobs. But then obviously Tim's like, you need to, you need to get a job. We need the income. Yeah. So I was applying for jobs, applying for jobs, and it got to kind of January time, and I applied for was applying for jobs left, right, and centre, and I went. I had a job interview in the morning in a pharmacy, which is completely new. I'd never even considered pharmacy before, but at this point, I would I would take a job anywhere. I wasn't overly confident that I'd got the job, so that afternoon, Tim and I made the journey down to the job centre. We needed something, whether it was job seekers allowance or anything like that. And actually, I actually then had a phone call on the Monday morning to say that I was hired as maternity cover at the pharmacy, as a pharmacy assistant for six months. And I ended up staying for 12 and a half years. And I love the, I love the name of it. It's called Touchwood. Yeah, it Touchwood is. Pharmacy, yeah. which very, sounds very superstitious for a pharmacy. <laughs> yeah, so yeah, um, it's called Touchwood Pharmacy. I think it was named... After, I think he got the name inspiration from a shopping centre in Solihull, I believe. Right. <laughs> so I started working at Touchwood Pharmacy. They trained me up all the way up to pharmacy technician level, which is the kind of level below pharmacist. And yeah, I stayed there and, and worked there until 2020, actually, September 2020. I, I left there. It was perfect. So obviously, as you can gather, I didn't go back to university, which I regretted for a while. But actually, I think it was probably the best decision for myself and yeah. my family and my mental health at that time. So how did the depression manifest itself 
was it a daily thing or a weekly thing or did it last for months at a time? How, how did it come about? How did it affect um, your life? So I, I had, as people know with depression, you go through ups and downs with, with depression. Sometimes I can be brilliant and fantastic and other times it can really drag me down. I didn't want to get out of bed. I had little and no interest in doing anything. I would happily just sit on the sofa, stare at the TV. I wouldn't go out. I didn't want to see anyone. There was no self-care. There was over-analyzing of situations, which is the anxiety side of it, where I would sit and worry about every single little thing. Or what happens if this happens? I don't want to go out and do that because what happens if somebody says this? Or what if this person thinks this about me? And, oh my gosh, that person's looking at me weird. Why, why are they looking at me? Have I got something on my face? What have I done? It was constant, constant. And even today, I can't do large crowds of people. It sends me over the edge. I I avoid things like big concerts and which is really hard. Like we did the big church day out earlier in the year, okay. and Tim was like, "Let's go down the front and see this see Ren Collective." And I was like, "No, I can't do it." Like I I just had to stand at the back. I just can't do large groups of people. Large groups of people that I don't know is awful. I will be shaking. I think that's the side of the anxiety is the kind of I'm not scared of people. Because that's not right but it's it's the unknown and the uncertainty and making conversation and small talk is a big part of my anxiety yeah um, more than anything you're not just speaking about that in past tense but even now it's seemingly something that you're still going through yeah so you must know in advance that there are certain things that would trigger depression and, and probably more anxiety than anything else yeah. so is anxiety more likely to be something you can predict Whereas depression is more unpredictable? Yeah, definitely. The anxiety, I have to kind of psych myself up to go and do various things, different groups and even like day-to-day activities like church and things like that. Sometimes like I can be, if I'm in a really, really bad place with depression, my anxiety will be even worse as well. And I'll just want to go do what I need to do at church or at this group or wherever and then just, just leave and not talk to anyone, which is really hard, especially when you've got the kids because everybody wants to talk to you when you've got children. That's really hard because I really struggle with kind of going into new situations that I I don't know. I find that really difficult. I'm going to phrase this next question diplomatically. Okay. But I think in the last 10 years or so, there's been a, a far bigger awareness and push for mental health and the relevance of it. But as Christians, we haven't always been particularly good at acknowledging it, recognizing it dealing with it so perhaps you could just explain some of your experiences and as a bit of a follow-up question what advice would you give to christians who are seeking to help friends going through depression and anxiety and stress yeah so i carried on with my battles in depression and things like that and, and life was life was really good tim and i bought our first house together in january 2010 We fell pregnant with our eldest son, Jude, who was then born in January 2011. And just kind of going back to the kind of depression and things like that, I will get to your question. But his birth didn't go to plan. And this pushed me a lot further into depression. And I think a lot of people dismissed it as postnatal depression because I was already depressed. Um, I was never asked those questions about postnatal depression. I just continue kind of painting a smile on my face and pretend that everything's okay panic attacks continued and I felt like I was pushing God away I didn't want to go to church anymore when I did go to church there was 
groups and wherever we were that kind of didn't didn't acknowledge that I had depression or anxiety. I was told, what have you got to be depressed about? There's nothing for you to be depressed about. You've got a house, you've got a wonderful husband, you've got a child, you know, everything for you is rosy and fantastic. But that was, that was what I painted for people to see. And kind of one point I felt like I was living two separate lives. I could be me outside of the church and there was me in the church where I kind of was like, yeah, everything's brilliant and fantastic and rosy. And, and I think partly the lack of understanding in terms of depression in the church was me as well, because I would paint that picture that everything was okay. But what I wanted was for, for somebody to come and say to me, you're not okay. Something's not right. You are, you know, even when I was outside of a church setting in houses and stuff like that, I'd have that kind of barrier up that everything was okay. So you having a facade? Basically, yeah. And like I say, live in two separate lives, which is not what you want. Because when you're a Christian, you are one, you're still, you're one person, wherever you are, outside of church, in church, you are one person, you are living for God. And I didn't feel that at all. I felt like I was... I was two people and I'd have the Emma that was able to be herself and the Emma that wasn't able to be herself. That really affected me, my relationship with Jude and also my relationship with Tim and ultimately at the end of the day, my relationship with God. By the time 2012, 2013 came around, I was making excuses every Sunday why I wasn't going to church. Tim would carry on going with Jude but that wasn't right. We were a family unit. We needed to be going to church together. And I said a little a little while ago about the kind of effects of depression. And actually looking back now, I've got blocks in my memory where I blocked those darkest times out of my brain. And unfortunately, those darkest times that I've knocked out are Jude as a baby. Yeah. So... I, I kind of get that opinion, that kind of feeling that actually 2011, 2012 were my darkest times. I've I've got, you know, people say to me, oh, you know, Seb, our second son, who I'll introduce later, um, he looks exactly like Jude. And was, you know, was Jude like that? Or I remember Jude in that outfit and I just look at them completely blank. Like, I, I just can't, I can't, I can't see it. I can't, can't visualise Jude as a baby and ultimately at the end of the day that's that's affected my relationship growing up with him i resented him it took me a long time to build my relationship back up with jude it's taken a while and a lot of a lot of work with tim a lot of work with me and also and a lot of work with jude and i think i'd also threw myself into work because i would be like oh well if i'm working i don't need to be with jude i don't need to be mum tim can do it tim can bring him up and I still struggle with that thought that actually I missed out on, on, on so much. I think going back to your question about what people can do in church about depression and, and supporting people, and I, I think it is talk to them. If they don't seem right or they're always happy, I mean, they may genuinely be happy, but just think, just talk to them and be open with them. And as you said, there is so much focus on mental health in the world at the moment. And I think if you're concerned, just speak to them. Or if you don't want to speak to them, pray for them. And if you want to just say to them, we're praying for you, I think that's a, I think that's a really big, 
a big part of, of it as well. I think with lots of the people I've interviewed, it would be fair to say that there's responsibility on both parts. One is the person going through it has to be honest because it's mm-hmm. so easy when someone says, how are you doing? to say, yeah, I'm good. And then that's it. And so in one sense, people don't actually know there's a problem. They might suspect, but they don't know. Uh, and the second thing is if we are open and honest, they have to then have the genuine concern and interest to deal with it. And as you yeah. say, if they don't feel they can, can cope in a conversational sense to take it to the Lord, because he mm. can. Yeah, exactly. And my standard stock answer was, oh, how are you? Yeah, fine. And every week I wouldn't elaborate on that. My answer was always, yeah, fine. Good, yeah, good week, yeah, good week. And that would be the end of the conversation. To me now, if somebody does that to me, I'm, hmm, hang on a minute. Something's not right here. And I try and make more of an effort. Obviously, I, I, I'm aware that when I'm struggling, that is my standard stock answer. And actually, Tim's very in tune with me now and the way that I he knows when I'm struggling. I'm really open now, having been through everything, that actually I will kind of say to him, I'm really struggling. And he will be like, right, OK, well, you go and do what you need to do and I'll sort everything else out. But we kind of talk and, you know, he's like, what do you need? What can I do to help you? And actually, we we moved churches nearly 10 years ago. And we moved churches and we felt at home straight away. And in the the first service that we tried, because we were going to look around at different churches and try different churches, and towards the end of the service, we were asked to get into small groups of people around us and ask for prayer for any issues that we were trying to tackle. And I'd never met these people at all, but I, I asked and I was open for the first time ever that I was struggling with depression, stress and anxiety, and I, I wanted it to be lifted. And I, I'd never met these people and I wasn't expecting that at all. And I was prayed for there and then, and it just felt like I'd, I'd come home and that I could be open with everybody in the church and I didn't need to hide and I was starting over and, and it was it was starting fresh and um, part of getting involved in the new church you took some of the role within the youth work and that seems to have been a real help to you mm-hmm. alongside that which you can elaborate on what else have you found helpful when you feel as though those times are coming so I'm quite involved in our church. I set up the youth work that is still running as well, which was really, really good. And I helped kind of set that up as well. We're still running it. And it's a, it's an absolute honour to be able to help guide those young people to watch your faith in God grow as well. In October 2015, I really had a really heavy episode. I'd been kind of stable for the last couple of years you know everything was good I'd qualified as a pharmacy technician I was building on my relationship with Jude we were you know we were quite happy in our life up in Northampton and Tim and I had always known that we wanted a, a big family so we decided to have another baby unfortunately that wasn't meant to be and while we were down in Somerset with Tim's family we we lost our baby at 11 weeks And it took me a really, really long time to understand that it happened to me. And I really battled with my mind for a really long time, really struggled with it. But I I had a wonderful group of people around me that prayed. And I, I knew that from my past experiences, I couldn't just 
sit and bottle it up and just forget about it and just be like, yeah, I'm fine. So I was really open and spoke about it. And it was really, it really took me a long time to understand that it wasn't my fault. We, we fell pregnant quickly again. And our second son, Sebastian, was born in November 2016. But yeah, I think it is being open and talking and also really leaning on God. He's there. He's your constant he's never going to go he's always going to be there and if you can't talk to anyone else here friends or family i think it's really important to talk to god and take everything to him there's the verse in the bible that says to cast your cares on him and i think that's a really important important thing even if you can't talk to anyone else talk to him he, he's listening he's there 24 7 he's you know he's never going to leave you or forsake you he'll be there all the time all the time for you. I think the hardest thing is casting our cares on him and leaving them there. Mm-hmm. And not yep. taking them back and worrying again. Yeah, that is that is a massive challenge. So taking them to him and kind of like laying them down and leaving them there and letting God kind of take that burden. <coughs> How has your relationship with the Lord impacted at different times through the depression? Is it that you depend more on them? Is it that you wander away from them? Is it a bit of both? It's it's a bit of both. It depends what's what's going on, obviously. I I really struggled obviously with the miscarriage because obviously it wasn't obviously God's plan for that baby to come into the world. And that was really hard. That was really, really hard. Because we'd we'd been trying for Seb or sorry, no, I'd been trying for this baby for a, a while and we kind of were like oh brilliant you know fantastic and also with miscarriage nobody ever thinks it's ever going to happen to them ever going to happen to them and we kind of got i'd lost the baby on the saturday and our 12 week scan was due to be on the wednesday so we'd kind of got to that nearly 12 week mark and we were like oh maybe we could tell we could tell tim's family that weekend it was we were away for his dad's 60th birthday and the whole family was together but actually in reality they literally found out i was pregnant and lost the baby in one sentence Mm. and that was really hard to understand and I think in the first few days I really pushed God away really pushed him away because I couldn't get my head around it but then kind of thought about it and prayed about it and actually thought it wasn't God's will and for whatever reason it wasn't so yeah I think it's a bit of both really I imagine that's hard to take to acknowledge God's will isn't always what we would imagine it would be. No, and I kind of look at it now that actually it wasn't God's will, and if it was, we we probably wouldn't have Seb. And that's kind of one way of looking at it. And Seb is my Seb is my beacon at times. He is so bright and happy, and um, he smiles all the time. He is my pocket rocket. <laughs> he is my rainbow. But you haven't just got two. And the story no. of how the third child came along is a bit more different. So you, yep. can, you can take the story about Maddie. Yes. So um, Tim and I are blessed with our two beautiful boys, Jude and Sebastian. And then um, this goes way back. I was I was writing some notes about our um, our journey earlier. And um, so um, back before we had Jude, um, Tim and I were looking into fostering. Um, but we decided that actually back, so we had Jude in 2011, so we'd only been married for about two and a half, three years at that point. 
and we kind of looked back and were like look we're not in a place to do this fostering at the moment we are we're newly married we haven't had any children we've got not really much experience about children with children and we don't own our own home and financially it wasn't it wasn't the right time but we both agreed having discussed it that in the future we would like to foster so we had our two boys and then in 20 towards the end of 2018 summer 2018 just before step was two it's that two-year itch where you're like oh maybe we could do this again um that kind of time i was um I was driving around Northampton and, and as many of you know, God works in wonderful ways. And it felt like literally everywhere, there was posters about adoption. There was posters about fostering. And I, I just kept seeing them everywhere. Like on the bus, while I'm driving down the road with the bus in front of me, adoption and fostering. And I was like, right, God, what are you trying to tell me? What is it you want me to do? And again, these posters were coming up. And um, it was during the summer holidays and Jude had gone off to stay with grandparents. And Tim and I took the um, time in the evenings um, once we'd got home from nursery with Seb to kind of have dinner and just get out for a walk. We um, we live kind of right on the edge of Northampton, so we've got plenty of kind of greenery all around us. And we'd go walking across the fields. And I, I texted him one day at work because I was like, right, God, you want me to adopt or foster? I need to get Tim. I need to speak to Tim. And I texted him one day and I said, right, I really want to talk to you tonight. And um, we did our whole walk and we were on our walk back home and I still hadn't brought it up. And I was like, right, you know, I said I wanted to talk to you. He was like, yeah, I said, um, I want to adopt or foster. And he was like, do you know what? That's been on my heart as well for the last couple of weeks. But neither of us had brought it up. We were still trying to, we were doing that battle with God of like, right, what do you want me to do? And are you going to show me what you want me to do? Or, you know, um, and we we kept seeing things just point into adoption and um we'd finally mentioned it and we decided to pray about it together and see where it took us um and then we spoke to the county council in the Hampton and they told us that your youngest child had to be at least two we were like oh okay well that's fine because that's you know two three months away so that's fine so the day after Seb's birthday, at the beginning of November, so he turned two, he was two years old in a day, um, we went to an open evening about adoption in Northampton and it started rolling, rolling from there really. We registered our interest, um, we did all of the preparation, our, we were both like fully interrogated basically um, about everything, they uncovered everything about our lives. Um, they spoke to my doctor, they spoke to Tim's doctor. We spoke openly about my depression, anxiety, how I manage it, what tools I have, am I on medication? How could I cope with another child? And obviously with the adoption process, there is always trauma for the children. How would I cope with certain trauma and, and things like that? We did training on all aspects of adoption as well. It's quite an in-depth, lengthy process. Because I imagine at that point, you don't know what your child will have gone through and experienced so really you have to be prepared for everything and anything yeah now there's a new type of adoption so traditionally adoption is that a child is normally in foster care prior to adoption whether that's that they are older and they've been removed from families and that they are placed with foster carers and then adopted from foster carers but there's a new type of adoption that's called foster to adopt 
where people are identified and it's for those children that are likely to be adopted. Their, their chances of being adopted are a lot higher in that they won't go back to birth parents because with a child obviously you don't want to place them with somebody and then move them on after a little bit of time because of those relationships that the children need to build. They explained to us that this type of adoption is normally used for those parents that have had previous children removed for whatever reason and that they've had another child and that child will automatically be placed for adoption. And we were looking at doing doing this. These children that come to you by foster for adoption are normally a lot younger. They're normally babies. Basically, they're normally from kind of from hospital because they are their their right. single plan is adoption. Tim and I went to what you call approval panel on the second of July, twenty nineteen. We were approved as adopters and also uh, for this dual kind of foster for adoption as well. We took the boys on a trip a lifetime i guess we took them to disneyland paris before their new sibling arrived i guess like a baby moon kind of trip and it was really nice had a brilliant time and stuff like that and then we got back at the middle of august we'd heard nothing about a child and we knew that it might take a little while and then on september the 12th 2019 normal day at work just working away we were thinking about emailing our social worker the following week because we we'd been back for a couple of weeks and we haven't heard anything and um so i'm in the pharmacy working away and my phone rings and it's social services saying that they have possibly got a child for us and at this point um there wasn't much known about this little girl she was born on uh, the 10th of september 2019 um and she was a baby that had been relinquished so birth mum didn't want didn't want the baby so she was in the hospital up in in Northampton near to Northampton and and needed a needed a home but they were still trying to decide what to do and whether we were the right people but would we be interested so obviously cue mad phone calls to Tim who refused to answer his phone I'm trying to get hold of him I'm trying to in the end I rang his office phone I never ring his office phone and managed to get through to him and, and we were both very much like Yes, yes. This was about half past three on a Thursday afternoon, so obviously didn't get much work done for the rest of the afternoon. And All those was, old people that didn't get the prescriptions. Yeah, no, that was it. I was like, no, I'm done. I was ringing work, saying to them, giving them a heads up, because obviously with foster to adoption, you don't get that kind of period of like introductions and things like that. It's all really, really quick. And I went to Next and bought loads of little um, baby girl clothes because I had no baby girl clothes. I spent the evening kind of setting things up. Me and Tim were like, right, we'll get the kids down and we'll sit and sort everything out for the adoption and things like that. Seb wouldn't go to bed. <laughs> he obviously could sense that something was going on, but he just would not go to bed. So me and Tim were like trying to juggle new baby stuff and sorting out everything with Seb kind of still running around, refusing to go to bed. We then had to wait in here. We both went to work on the Friday, still trying to kind of like process everything. Will she be coming home? Will she not? Will she? And about three o'clock on Friday afternoon, we had the phone call that she was ours and that we could head to the hospital to pick her up. And we picked her up at half past four on the Friday afternoon. She's been with us ever since. We had a really, really, really rocky adoption journey after that because she's not legally ours at that point we were still foster carers so there was no like we had no legal responsibility for her we were still shared with the county council 
we had to go through all that process. There was a load of things with birth mum, tracking down birth dad and things like that. And then boom, March 2020, lockdown hit. It just made things so much harder with with everything. And we were pushed from pillar to post. There was still so much that we couldn't sort out and so much we wanted to sort out. But finally, on July, uh, sorry, January the 14th, 2021, Madeline's adoption order was granted and she was officially a Surrey. And she's now been with us, so for three years, actually, she was three over the weekend, just gone. And she is, she is wonderful. She is an absolute blessing. And we feel so honoured to be her parents and, and things. And back to the kind of depression, anxiety, the, the anxiety was at its peak through that, uh, through that adoption process. And then throw in a pandemic in the middle of that with three children at home, with one that needed to be homeschooled as well, with Tim who's trying to hold down a full-time job working at home as well. And with such uncertainty with foster to adoption, they could they could turn around to us and say, oh, she's not staying with you. Or the first six weeks, so with Maddie being a relinquished baby, birth mum has six weeks for her to kind of officially make up her mind. and say actually no I, she in that first six weeks she could turn around and say actually I want I want my baby and that was hard you mentioned with Jude that there were times you would look back and see you, you didn't have the greatest of bonds I suppose it would have been hard with Maddie to get too attached just in case you know there's always that fear that well what if so far down the line she has to move on it must be quite difficult to throw your role in it was incredibly hard because obviously the boys bonded with her instantly. Um, we did, we did, we bonded with her instantly. I mean, we knew in the, the kind of deepest, backest part of our minds that the chances of her going back were really, really slim, but they were still there. And I honestly think if Maddie had gone, I think it would have broken me. And it took me a long time to realise she was staying. And when she was legally ours, it took me a long time to kind of get my head around that. And then we've got the, we, we speak to her now. She knows, she know, we talked to her about being adopted. Seb went through a phase of telling her constantly she was adopted, as he does as kind of a three-year-old. And, and we've got to navigate that as we go through life, basically. My brother went through a phase of telling people I was adopted when, when I started the high school, although I actually am not. You <laughs> just you just told everyone I was. Oh yeah, no, it's um we it's very clear that through through the training that you do, it's not something you hide from your child. They give you tools and things like that to to be able to to equip yourself with that and be able to to give that to your child for them to be able to to know from an early age they don't get to their 18th birthday like they did in the past where they go oh by the way you're adopted that's something that you are encouraged to talk about from an early age they give you a life storybook so that explains all of maddie's early early bits explains things about her birth mum what we know about her birth dad she's got a um a board book as well that is explained to her in her toddler form like toddler language and things like that and that's got a picture of her birth mum in it as well but obviously she's still quite young so she doesn't quite understand fully about that with maddie will her mum have any opportunity to meet her or is that something that 
she will, as an adult, decide? We actually had the opportunity to meet her birth mum, but her birth mum decided at the last minute that she didn't want to meet us, which I think is... I, I understand. I, I completely understand that as a, as a mother as well, to completely understand meeting this, this person that is going to be bringing up your child, even though she chose, in a way, to give up her child. I completely understand why she has decided not to meet us. She's never seen a photo of Maddie, and she never met Maddie when she, when she gave birth to her either. And she said that was because she knew that if she fell in love with her, or she saw her, she would fall in love with her and that she wouldn't be able to give her up, but she knew that she couldn't give her the life that she fully deserved and that somebody else would be able to do that for her. We write annual letters to birth mum and to birth dad. They are written from myself and Tim at the moment. Eventually, if Maddie wanted to, then that would be something that, that we would support Maddie in doing. And obviously, once Maddie gets to 18, then that is her decision as to what she wants to do and we will support her in whatever she wants to do and knowing that she is just as long as she knows that she is loved and adored by us. No social media is a bit hit and miss as people put the best of pictures up but the boys certainly seem to absolutely adore her. Oh they absolutely adore her like they um she stands her ground oh my goodness does she stand her ground but the boys adore her. They will they'll do anything. Tim came down the other morning and um, Maddie potty trained in the last couple of weeks and she came downstairs and Seb's helping her to sit on the potty and then trying to empty her potty in the toilet and they will do anything. They absolutely adore her. Absolutely adore and don't want her completely, as Tim and I do really, to be honest. So moving forward, as we kind of we've come up to modern day, we've we've come up to the most recent of times. If you were to give a couple of pieces of advice to people going through depression and anxiety or, or who have family and friends going through it, mm. what would be one or two pieces of advice that you think are most helpful for them? Supporting them, listening to them, letting them vent, letting them talk as well. Talking is a, a big thing. Offering to kind of help them. Don't force it, you know, don't keep asking them every five seconds, are you okay? Are you okay? What can I do for you? What can I do for you? You need to kind of let them know that you're there for them and to talk to if they want to talk. I think that's a, a big one, but I think ultimately as a Christian and and things, I think the ultimate thing that you can do is pray for them. Also tell them that you love them regardless and that God loves them. I think that's a big, big thing. It's just being there to support them through everything. I think that a lot of people still don't know that I struggle with depression and anxiety. It's something that I have hidden for a long time and have hidden really well. I became more open about it over lockdown and with Maddie's adoption journey, as you probably saw kind of on Instagram and stuff like that, it was something that I was really regularly talking about and I think it needs to stop being a taboo subject. I think it needs to be something that is spoken about everywhere. Churches, schools, 
colleges every, everywhere. Because at the end of the day, I think it is a massive subject that is brushed under the carpet. And it's all very, it's all very British, I think. That yeah. People just don't want to talk about it. And I, I hope that by talking about it and my story, I'm hoping that it might spur somebody else to talk about it as well. Because I have to be honest, the only reason I was away you'd struggled and gone through it is because you'd been so open on Instagram, possibly or Facebook. Uh, it's not. It's definitely not Facebook. It's Instagram. Instagram. I haven't haven't branched out on talking about it on Facebook. I think my Instagram profile is very kind of locked down, and and there's only kind of I know most people that are on my Instagram. Whereas my Facebook, like six hundred people that were from school that I've not spoken to for twenty years. Yeah. Which I think is the same for a lot of people. So that you know, you may have noticed that actually Maddie doesn't appear on my Facebook very often. But she does on my Instagram because there's a lot of people on there that I know and love. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for being so honest and, and so open. I, I think it is something we need to, to be more vocal about. Mm. I always finish with the same question. Have you a verse or verses that you found helpful at any point during your experience? So one of my, I've got two favourite verses. One is kind of linked to kind of depression, anxiety, which is Philippians 4, kind of do not be anxious in anything, is a, a massive verse that I kind of recite to myself on a daily basis. And obviously the other one, I, I think, is the Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, saith the Lord. And I think everybody, I think God has a plan for everybody. It's a massive, it's, it's literally all over my house, it's everywhere. That and the do not be anxious, I think, are two really kind of important, poignant verses that I I try and live by kind of daily as well. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to share your testimony. No worries at all, Dan. Thank you so much. Well worth the wait. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for having me tonight, Dan. Um, it's been really nice to kind of talk about everything. And if it's kind of stirred up anything in anybody whether it's the depression the stress the anxiety supporting people kind of going through it or um if anyone in churches wants to chat about the best way to kind of support people or anything regarding fostering or adoption or anything i've spoken about really if you contact dan dan will get in touch with me and i'm happy to have a chat with people but thank you thank you emma that's great Thank you for listening to Testimony Podcast, hosted by me, Dan Bilton. If you have a suggestion as to who could be interviewed, you can email us at testimonypodcast at outlook.com, or you can find us on Facebook at Testimony Podcast, on Instagram at testimony underscore podcast, and then the number one. If you've enjoyed this episode or any of the previous ones, then please consider commenting liking or sharing them on social media this really helps to get them noticed also please consider leaving a review thank you